The Talkin' Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. The Golf Society is founded on the belief that the latest golf trends, fashion and concepts shouldn't be compromised, but shared with every golfer. Shop online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 32 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Today on our show, I'm happy to introduce a new series called Legends of the Game. In this new series, we will dive into the men and women who have changed the game of golf. I can't think of a better way to kick off this new series than introducing our guest today. Only a handful of men have won both the U.S. Amateur and British Amateur, and they include the likes of Harold Hilton, Walter Travis, Bobby Jones, and Lawson Little. Our guest today was on the PGA Tour when it broke off from the PGA of America, and then in 1974 became the second commissioner of the PGA Tour. As commissioner of the PGA Tour, Dean Beeman sculpted the PGA Tour into the modern version that we know today. In his early days at the helm of the PGA Tour, he turned it into a 501c nonprofit, which to date has donated over $3 billion to charities across the United States. Dean recreated the tour on television, and his marketing ideas, you soon will learn, changed all of professional sports. Before we kick off this program, I want to give special thanks to Adam Schupek and his amazing book, Dean Beeman, Golf's Driving Force. If you love this podcast and you want to learn more about Dean Beeman, I can't think of a better source. Now let's take you to my one-on-one interview with Dean Beeman at PGA Tour headquarters in Ponte Vedra, Florida. Mr. Beeman, thank you so much for joining us on the Talking Golf History Podcast. Delighted to be here today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. I really do mean that. Um, the PGA Tour has entered the West Coast Swing, which means that golf's first big event of the year is right around the corner, the Players' Championship. The Players' Championship was founded during your inaugural year as the PGA Tour Commissioner in 1974. Mr. Beeman, can you share with us the story behind the founding of the Tournament Players' Championship? Well, the, the, the tournament uh, was approved in the fall. Uh, Commissioner... Uh, uh, Dai um, was the one that uh, actually advanced the notion of having a championship for the tour, and uh, that was approved in the in uh, the in the fall, I believe it was, and uh, it was scheduled to be uh, at Atlanta uh, and hosted by our Atlanta sponsor. So uh, that was the beginning. I became commissioner on March first. And um, my responsibility was to try to make this new event uh, uh, successful. Uh, 
So uh, it was scheduled first in Atlanta, and then I scheduled it for um, uh, Fort Worth, and our sponsor in Fort Worth. That was at Colonial, at, correct? At Colonial, yeah. yes, indeed. And uh, and I think it was one of our fa- our favorite golf courses from our players at that time. So uh, that that's where it was held the second year. And uh, it was, I thought, um, reasonable success the first couple of years. But um, I felt that uh, the event was was originally scheduled. Um, we haven't talked about when it was. Yeah. Uh, it was in August. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and it was different than now, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it was in August, right in the middle of the uh, – uh, f- finishing the British Open and the PGA Championship, and then we we yeah. had the uh, World Series of Golf was being played at that time, so it was sort of lost in the in the shuffle of the end of the summer. And I thought, a- in order for the tournament to be what I thought it could be, that it should be moved uh, up in the in the schedule, and to be the first important event of the year. Yeah. And that's when uh, I I moved it to the March date, uh, and it was held in uh, Fort Lauderdale uh, for the first time. Um, it, it was a little bit of a problem in scheduling it because um, we had a tight schedule, and I was uh, personally opposed to taking our own championship and, uh, and, and, and getting our own date and that would then push all the other sponsors away. Right. So I thought that, uh, you know, I, I, I was a very uh, strong advocate of being supportive of all of our sponsors. And so we were, I, I came up with the solution to, to uh, maybe um, get one of our sponsors to embrace it fully, not to just to host it for one year, but to uh, really embrace it and form a partnership. Uh, and have it in a, in a date, and and if we were successful in doing that, we wouldn't be pushing our other sponsors around just to benefit ourselves. Right. Let, me, let me ask you this. So when the PGA Tour split away from the PGA of America in 1968, I think you were in your second year, year on tour, the PGA of America retained control of the PGA Championship, uh, which it runs to this very day. Now, I'm asking you from one of the best negotiators in golf's history, um, if you were in charge of the PGA of America, or I'm sorry, the PGA Tour, w- would you have fought harder to take that championship under the PGA Tour's wing? Because, I mean, I, I, you know, we won't get into in this podcast, but some of your negotiations, TV rights, corporate sponsorships are, are just legendary. So I, I think from a master negotiator, I'm, I'm just curious how you might have approached it. I don't think that would have been possible, um, and it's not something that I would have tried to negotiate. Uh, I do feel, however, that uh, the probably the big omission was uh, for the players not to either retain uh, or, or or at least um, maybe uh, joint venture the Ryder Cup. Yeah. Uh, so you know the PGA Championship was the PGA of America's. Uh, event just like the just like the U.S. Open is for the for the USGA and the and the British Open is so I I don't think that would have been possible and uh, probably would not have been a good move to try to do that but the but the Ryder Cup is is another matter when the Players Championship was formed was it always let's just say with the intent that it would be a major championship for the the tournament Players Club 
for the term for the PGA Tour, essentially. It, it, yes, I envision it as being. Uh, I, I envision it as being a major championship. Yeah. I thought it should be and could be, and I believe is uh, just as important as a championship as any other in the world. Regarding its major championship status, over the years, the sentiment's been split between players. Uh, One of my favorite quotes was Jack Nicklaus, who once famously quoted as saying that he didn't consider the players' championship a major, but he won three of them just in case. And then he had, uh, on the opposite side, we had Lee Trevino, which is another great quote, uh, because it it rings to um, something I think is interesting. Lee Trevino believed that the players' championship should be a major championship, or was a major championship, and should take the place of the Masters as the fourth major. And his argument essentially being that you have four ruling bodies, right? You have the RNA, the USGA, um, the PGA over the PGA of America, and the players, whereas the Masters is a unique event held. Um, But I'm getting into this question. And I I came across this last year when I was doing some research on the, um, the, the players' championship. I found an article, and I've only have one uh, one published fact on it. Uh, I found this article in January 6, 1981. It was in the Tampa Bay Times, which said that you received a letter from the RNA, the world's ruling body in golf, for you listening at home. And in that letter, the RNA gave its official recognition that it considered the Players' Championship a major championship. I can only find that one source. Do you remember that letter by chance? Uh, I don't. I actually don't remember specifically but uh, that doesn't mean that uh, that I didn't feel, uh, even back in 1981, yeah. uh, that uh, this event was a very important one, uh, that it deserved to be a major championship, and that as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's just as important as any event played. How do we get it there? So I, 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 there was an informal poll, informal poll, and mind you, totally informal. And 90% of uh, participants said that the Players' Championship was not. If the goal is to be a major, how does one achieve that without one, without one authority over golf that says this is a major and this is not? Like, how, do we, how does that happen in your eyes? Well, uh, that's almost an impossible question yeah, to answer, I but I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll answer it this way. Yeah. Um, there's one person that I believe in the foreseeable future that can make the uh, players a major championship, and that's Tiger Woods. Oh, sure. If Tiger Woods uh, wins his 18th event, then I believe Jack Nicklaus will declare the players <laughs> a major <clears throat> because I like that <laughs> because Tiger Woods will have to win one more. To that's catch right. Him. <laughs> Jack won three. That's hilarious. That's awesome. I love that. There are some out there that believe that the fifth major championship should should represent and be held outside of the United States and outside of Great Britain. If you were still commissioner, and hypothetical, um, would you think of supporting or think of holding the player championship every other year, one being at TPC Sawgrass and the other year rotating the championship outside of the United States? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think so. That's, I don't think that's a good idea. The, the uh, Moving a championship around... Uh, is uh, it, it, I, I thought that, that was one of the reasons that I, I decided that the players should be in one place. Yeah, because originally it was going to be it was going to be it was going to be rotated and yeah. moved around just like the U.S. Open. That's that was Joe Dye's concept. Yeah, originally, and uh, there was I, I felt that 
that the event itself would get uh, better recognition, that would be uh, we could uh, run a better tournament if you uh, if you if we got a facility that we could use permanently and invest the kinds of monies necessary to build the kind of structures and uh, and accommodations for gallery. Yeah, and, you wouldn't have uh, to reinvent the wheel every single time for sure. That's right. And the other part of it is that. Uh, for the public to really, uh, uh, I would say, uh, get their own psyche into the tournament, uh, it's it's much easier for them to do that when they recognize the golf course uh, yeah. every year. And and of course, here at the Players Championship, there are some very very interesting golf holes so that true. people. Um, recognize yeah. immediately, and they recognize not just during the tournament week, but uh, every day of the year. Yeah, and you have the whole, you have the lead through seventy holes, and you just know what's coming up. That's right. That's <laughs> I right. love that. But I mean, the seventeenth, devastating to some. Um, let's move on to the Players Championship Cathedral, TPC Sawgrass. Um, most people don't know my real job on this podcast, and for you at home, I'm a healthcare real estate developer. I, I develop real estate properties all over the United States. And this is what really intrigues me about this property, the TPC Sawgrass, is the deal that you made for this property. Over, what, 455 acres that includes uh, the TPC Sawgrass and its properties, as well as the PGA Tour headquarters. Can you go through that amazing story, how much you paid for it, obviously, the checks on the wall out in the hallway. Go through that story of how that came about. Well, it, it's really not a big mystery. Uh, the, the history before we pl- built the, the Players uh, Club, the TPC here, was uh, showed, and, and I'll give you a perfect example, was uh, Hilton Head, mm-hmm. um, that, that uh, if, if somebody built a golf course on a big piece of property and brought a golf tournament there, uh, it enhanced the value of all the property. And uh, and I felt that if we could find a developer that had a sufficient amount of land so that he could afford to give us the land yeah. and we could then enhance the value of the rest of his property, that we could uh, get the property for uh, what we actually did, a dollar. A dollar. And, that, and that's how it worked. Technically, you got it for free because the checks up on the wall is Well, it? we did get it for free because because uh, I kept the check. Yeah, I like that. I wrote it to him, yeah. but I wanted to put take it on the a, take wall. Take a look, I'm putting it on the wall. <laughs> right, yeah. the, that's right. So, um, the the you know, there were 4,000 acres here and uh, and when uh, it was it was a very difficult time in the real estate market yeah. at that particular time. And I believe the developer here uh, 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 the bank uh, that that had the uh, uh, that had loaned him money, um, they were in arrears and payments. It was a difficult time in the real estate business. Um, literally within 18 months of us purchasing the land, even before we uh, we uh, opened the golf course, uh, a major real estate developer from South Florida came in. Bought all the property mm-hmm. uh, from the developer around the tournament players club, um, and uh, and the the Fletchers who owned the four thousand acres walked away with uh, the uh, almost half the property uh, still left in their hands, where they developed 
the what is called the Marsh Marsh Landing across the way here. Yeah, and uh, they ended up with cash in hand, no debt, and a and a whole new development. So th- the answer was is that the formula that bringing a major golf tournament and television to a real estate property, particularly in a in an area like in Florida, yeah, uh, in North Florida, um, uh, that that formula works. Now, was there anybody out there who thought you overpaid for the property? I don't think there. I don't <laughs> think there was anybody that thought we overpaid. No, I have to ask, right, Dean? I can't believe you spent a dollar, right? <laughs> part of the deal, though, that you had was I thought I thought was brilliant is that you secured the property, the development, etc., on basically a non-recourse loan. Well, what happened that was actually? A big, that's what, a big deal. What actually happened was is that the the tournament policy board had never invested in anything like a even their headquarters. Yeah. Uh, when I became commissioner, the probably the most expensive thing that the tour had ever bought was a IBM Selectric typewriter. Um, we did buy a small computer after I became commissioner, but that was then the biggest investment, and. Uh, the, uh, the tournament policy board, when I uh, advanced the concept that we ought to have our own facility um, and, and uh, the, the tournament policy board um, said that we thought it was a good idea, but the tour would not invest any money in it. So I had to find a way yeah. of creating a facility without any money. Part of that was uh, the, the PGA Tour, um, what is now the PGA Tour, investing in owning a golf course and but they didn't invest in owning a golf course correct they yeah. got it for nothing they got it for nothing <laughs> but it kicked off a debate within the players which uh, Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer took some issue with and there was a, a little bit of a I don't know if you want to call it a coup but there was a, a it riled up some of the pros well a coup I think a definition of a coup is one that's successful (laughs) (laughs) this was an this was an attempted coup (laughs) yeah attempted coup thank you for the correction walk me through that scenario like what happened they were upset they had several issues but you think it came down to mostly that one i I don't think it was mostly that one. okay go ahead please Uh, they were opposed to us owning players clubs Mm -hmm. Uh, they were uh, opposed to us um, taking the the brand of the PGA Tour and monetizing it, and they were opposed to our um, marketing and uh, and corporate programs that would bring in dollars. Yeah, um, and their attitude generally was that uh, if the PGA Tour were to uh, um, associate ourselves with a corporate sponsor and get paid monies for that. That that was money that belonged to the players in their pocket. And, uh, yes, yeah. and that we were taking it away from them, and I always maintained that um, is, is that the tour uh, absolutely needed corporate sponsors, and uh, and and I'll give you a perfect example is uh, when I became commissioner, um, bowling had more events on television, and had more rights fees than golf. Wow. Um, and it isn't a big mystery because um, if you take, uh, let's take bowling first, but tennis, basketball, baseball, football, hockey. Um, back then, uh, the television networks could televise uh, one of those events for probably 
expensive twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah. You one know, camera, it was two it, cameras. One camera, you two cameras, one little booth. Uh, either one announcer or two announcers. You plug it in, you're in business. Yeah. Adios. It costs a quarter of a million dollars to do a golf tournament. Over hundreds of acres. Over hundreds of acres. Over, over. They had to bring in uh, uh, cameras on trucks. They had to build towers. They had to, there was no, uh, there was no uh, line. So they had to, uh, the ke- television cables. Or wherever, so and that was, of course, the reason they only televised maybe four or five holes. Right. They didn't do more than that uh, because it was too expensive. So golf was at a huge disadvantage from a television standpoint. Uh, and in order to um, in order to uh, have an opportunity for golf to prosper and to be uh, have more television coverage and have for the television income to be a factor in the player's income. Uh, we had to find a different way of doing that. That wasn't easy. Yeah. Uh, and it was m- even more difficult because the television networks had a policy against either a camera or an announcer, either the camera looking at the announcer saying a commercial name unless it was during a commercial break. Yeah. So we had, to, we had to uh, show the television networks um, and, and we started and we made a little bit of progress, but uh, the, the biggest leap in uh, that progress was when ESPN came on the scene hmm. because the tour bought uh, time from ESPN and we uh, put the programs together ourselves and, and, and got commercial sponsor and showed the television networks that golf could be very profitable. I, that's part um, with of, a title sponsor. Yeah, it's part of. Um, and, and of course, let, let me let yeah, me please. back up. The reason the reason that it could be uh, very successful is that um, if you use a title sponsor uh, for a tournament or for any event, right? But let's take a tournament sponsor because we're the, the golf was is paved the way. This is and and you see this in all television sports today. But golf created this opportunity for everybody um if the if the if the na- name of the tournament is a commercial name uh and and the, and the best example would be the kemper open because that existed long before most of the other title sponsors um the, the, it's not only the value of kemper the open the announcer on the tournament week, the last on the weekend, because they were only they were only telecast on the weekend. It wasn't just the two days of television that they got the value. Um, as soon as the tournament uh, schedule was put out, Kemper Open was on the schedule, and there were uh, millions of places where that was recorded. Uh, so Kemper got the value of Kemper being in a tournament schedule. Then uh, there were three or four golf magazines back then. There aren't that many today, but there are three or four golf magazines, and they always, um, there was always articles about uh, what's coming up on television. They printed the schedule. Right, yeah. And then they also reported the results. So Kemper got the value. Three of, times over. Of, of three times over. But then the big deal is this, that when the Kemper Open was on, uh, every newspaper in the country covered the Kemper Open. They didn't cover a tournament in Charlotte. 
They covered the Kemper Open. So on every newspaper, the Kemper Open was in a place where you couldn't even buy an advertising place. Absolutely. And uh, then, and the same thing, the same thing with local television. So, um, even today, for instance, uh, and, and and the tour does calculations. We did calculations back then in, in smaller numbers, on but your today, computer. yeah, your on mom. my on my computer. <laughs> but today, for instance, uh, if a title sponsor spends twelve or fifteen million dollars a year to be a title sponsor for a tournament, um, if it's a U.S. company, not international. They probably get somewhere between twenty-five and thirty million dollars worth of value, not just the television coverage, but it's all of this other coverage that goes with it. If they're an international company, because uh, uh, all of our tournaments are are uh, broadcast internationally in in I don't know how many countries—fifty, sixty, yeah. hundred—I don't yeah. know how many countries, but a lot of them. Um, that value could go up to 30 or 40 35 40 or 50 million dollars wow. for a 12 million dollar investment so it is uh it is uh, the the other thing is today um when the television negotiations go on with the networks uh all of our title sponsors that we have created come with our rights um, we we require uh, uh, tournament uh, title sponsors to allocate so many uh, units to purchase, and so some seventy or eighty percent of all the the units are pre-sold by the networks. So they know uh, they're they're not they're not buying golf at a risk. They're, they're not buying from golf. Scratch. That's not, they're not starting from scratch. That's the brilliance. So I, I think what's interesting when when you but that never that didn't exist. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like when you negotiated the TV rights for broadcasting, you really did it. You changed the model twice. Like when you took over, I, I believe it was at just CBS had a one year contract with the PGA Tour. Actually, it was ABC. It was ABC. ABC. Yeah. Bruno Orledge, ABC had the uh, had the agreement with the tour, and you and you saw it as well, there's a huge discrepancy here. I mean, there's we're losing value. We're not getting it out to more people, and you opened up those contracts. I think in year two or year three. Well, it was it a little more complicated than that. Uh, uh, they had a contract, and their contract that uh, that existed was a contract that gave them first right of negotiation, first right of refusal. Um, so, uh, getting somebody else involved, we had to go through two steps with ABC to get past that. And of course, when I became commissioner, we didn't have a television contract for the next year, nor did we have a schedule. So we were up against it. But the other part of that is that um, the, um, the the television um, the television contracts uh, were were uh, <laughs> we we were stuck with ABC for a couple of years. Yeah. But CBS was not interested in doing golf. They did, I think, one. They did the Masters tournament and maybe did one other. I'm not sure that they even did a second one, but they did maybe one other. Um, and they didn't. They weren't. They were interested in golf, and they loved golf, but they weren't interested in putting on a golf tournament um, because they had the CBS Golf Classic. CBS Golf Classic was uh, was held at at, uh, at Firestone. They invited, uh, I think, sixteen players in. Uh, 
uh, for a two-week filming, and they played all the matches, and then they put them on television. They had a 13-tournament series, and the tournament, and the uh, and they paid the PGA Tour a whopping fifteen thousand dollar rights fee. And the tour players were making quite a bit of money on the those. Matches, well, they, they? No, they they were making. Well, they they were making uh, I think fifteen. If if they lost, they got a thousand dollars. If they won, they got fifteen hundred bucks or something like that. It wasn't it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, it wasn't one. There wasn't a heck of a lot of prize money involved, and there surely were no rice fees involved. So CBS uh, had the best deal in the world. They had golf for thirteen weeks, and they weren't spending quarter of a million dollars a week to produce it. They were spending probably three hundred thousand dollars in two weeks to produce thirteen events. Uh, and so, um, the 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 first thing I did was cancel the CBS Golf Classic. Um, it was uh, it was detrimental to our ability to expand golf on television. So the CBS Golf Classic was was literally the first thing I did that was uh, started to set in motion uh, a better television arrangement for the tour. Yeah, I, I, I just I. Personally, I look back at it from a negotiating standpoint that you change the model for who's broadcasting, how it's broadcasting, and expanding your coverage, but then bringing in the, the corporate sponsorship piece, which you mentioned before, is fascinating because it really relieved the pressure from the networks for how are we going to fill the time, who's the sponsorship going to be, how are we going to fund this, where you created a model, the modern model right, of the PGA Tour broadcasting is creating the win-win-win, Right. Uh, the PGA Championship, or the PGA Tour wins, the players win, and the sponsor wins. Right. Well, you see, uh, the, the other part of it is is that the uh, the the networks, the television networks, uh, then uh, they could put on the Gator Bowl, for instance, but they could not put on a, the Gator Bowl with the title name on it, and and they didn't have. Uh, they didn't have uh, communities didn't have uh, title sponsors on stadiums, right? For yeah. instance, so that really so starts the, with the that, PGA Tour. The, the PGA Tour created that model that allowed all those things to happen. And, but the first thing they had to do was we had to show the networks um, uh, that 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 it would be in everyone's interest to change their policies, which which they did. It took three or four years to do that. So like AT&T Park and Dell Stadium and, yeah, all those. Really they, they didn't exist before. But it all starts here. It all started here. I, I didn't even know that. I Actually, in all my research, I didn't even come across that or didn't make the connection, which is even more fascinating that it jumped sports. We, we, we showed the networks and the other sports how to monetize uh, the values uh, that the sport would bring to the rest of the world. Wow. Um, let's, let's get to the, to Sawgrass where we're, we're stand, sitting here today. Uh, the PGA tours cathedral, um, the golf world is still mourning the passing of Pete Dye who designed TPC Sawgrass with you. Could you sh- share the story about how you two met? I, I, I met, uh, and, and Pete and I discussed this a couple times, um, we we met at at uh, some amateur tournament because Pete was uh, several years older than me. Um, he went to a university in Orlando, Florida. I'm trying to think of the name of it, but it escapes uh, you, me. UFC, right? uh, U- no, UCF? Did he? No, no, he no. didn't. No, no, it was. 
well, beside the point. Yeah. But he was a keen golfer. Uh, he played in the amateur, and I played. I think he played in the Trans Mississippi or the Western Amateur, and and I believe I met him uh, back back in the early days there. That's where we first met, and uh, of course uh, he designed uh, Harbortown uh, with Jack Nicholas. Actually, it was a partnership uh, in that design, and um, and and just like uh, I, I mentioned earlier, Colonial. Uh, country club in Fort Worth, Texas, was one of the f- players' favorite places. Well, uh, Harbortown is is today still one of the fair players' favorites. It was a Pete Dye course, so uh, I wanted. A, I, you know, it was a similar property kind of property that we had. It was dead flat, um, uh, a, a kind of a jungle. He had to cut through a jungle to build that golf course. And I thought that uh, if we could build that kind of a golf course, uh, that uh, that and that's why I I really went for Pete Dye. So the process was there really wasn't a process of who the architect's going to be. You were like, Pete Dye is the only person that can do this project the way we want. Well, he wouldn't have been the only person that could do it. Sure, uh, but uh, I thought based on what he had done at Harbortown, uh, that I thought he was the right person. Yeah. Um, through your idea and his design, you both really changed golf course architecture. That I mean, TPC Sawgrass changed the way golf course architecture continued. Um, can you talk a little bit about the idea of stadium golf and what you asked Pete to create here at Sawgrass? Well, that's that's really a that's a whole other story. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, back in the early '60s, uh, I was asked by a, a, a golf course. Uh, Eddie Alt, who was in the Mid Atlantic section of uh, where I lived up in Maryland, uh, to uh, cooperate with him on a golf course on the Eastern Shore that actually was never built. Uh, so we went out and looked at the property and uh, and did a routing plan. And as we were talking uh, and putting this together in a unsuccessful venture that never came about. Um, I got to talking about uh, with with Eddie Alt that uh, I had just recently uh, gone to watch the tournament uh, that was played at Congressional Country Club. Uh, it was just a tour tour event, mm-hmm. uh, National Capital Open, I think they called it. Well, you know, um, I, I was out there, and the biggest seller was uh, was a uh, was a, a periscope. Periscopes, yeah, sure, yeah. And I told him that. Uh, that I thought that uh, that golf could really benefit by what I called building what I called a stadium golf course, where the the holes were built down and the and the uh, the, the outside of the fairways were were up, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, that we came up with a general concept of stadium golf, and and even to the to the extent that he did some drawings of uh, of the stadium, and and actually a uh, a little uh, a little cart along the top of the stadium, so people could so the so they oh the, really so the, yeah so the, yeah. so the people couldn't walk could actually follow the golf on, on a cart up top, and so uh, we we put the concept together and went to Joe Dye, who was executive director of the USGA in New York, and he and I went to New York and sat down with Joe Dye and tried to convince him that the USGA 
should build uh, six or seven golf courses around the country uh, as they where they could move their championships yeah. on on stadium golf courses, and at the same time use those facilities in all those regions for their uh, for their ag- agronomy services, yeah. so that they could experiment uh, with turf conditions and uh, and and marry the two together, and uh, uh, we we. Uh, we spent a lot of time, drove to New York, and sat down with uh, with Joe Dye, and I don't think anybody else at the time, just Joe Dye, and it took about uh, 30, 45 minutes to make a presentation, and it took about uh, three and a half minutes to shake hands and say goodbye, <laughs> and nothing happened with it. So yeah. I had this, uh, I had helped, uh, I had helped uh, Eddie Alt and I together had had created this concept of stadium golf when I became commissioner and then decided that we should build our own golf course. That notion of stadium golf came back into play. That's and that's where it came from. Yeah. I, you know what is interesting about that? In the 1920s, uh, Chick Evans had an AP uh, syndication, and he wrote an article uh, in the AP to the USGA, not so much stadium golf, but it was referring to... Uh, essentially just owning two golf courses, one on the East Coast, one on the West, that, had, that was built for spectators to watch and could handle the crowds. And essentially their idea was every other year you would rotate, the U.S. Amateur would be played on the East while the U.S. Opens played on the West, and they'd reverse the next year. And very similar concept, except yours obviously had much more detail to his idea. And of course, the U.S. And by the way, I should, I should note... When Chick Evans said West Coast, he meant Chicago. <laughs> there you <laughs> that, go. That was the mindset of the 1920s. That was West. But I just, I, I think that's, that's a fascinating, but it didn't take with the USGA, obviously. They don't. Or it was, it was, it, it wasn't even close to taking. Yeah. It was. They didn't want to be in the golf course it, business. Was that the, the gist? I don't, I, hard to, hard to, hard to know exactly why. Probably my guess would be is that, uh, that, uh, the, um, uh, USGA exists because of member clubs around the country, yeah. and they uh, they move the club around their own membership clubs, and they thought that might be a conflict rather see. than their own clubs. Yeah. But so you meet with Pete Dye. How how did the design evolve from your first meeting until opening day? So I know you sat down and you talked about this concept of stadium golf. I think he made some sketches for you. Is well, first of, first of all, uh, um, I, I explained to Pete that this had to be a stadium golf course, and I, ex- and I explained to him what I, I meant, and that even though we had a dead flat piece of property, um, the, 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 the realities of a piece of property like this is is that you have to remove uh, a couple of feet of the, uh, of the really the material that is not suitable for fairways to get down to sand and you got to do something with this. So all of that, all of that uh, material that had to come off of all the playing surfaces had to go someplace. And I said, we'll just, we'll just move them aside and build stadium uh, features so people could stand on those mounds and watch a golf tournament. So it was quite easy to do. And the same thing in, in, uh, in getting um, sand um, we built a bunch of lakes around the golf course because that's and built them where the sand was, 
so that we could recover the sand and cover and cover the fairways with the with the fresh sand, the good sand. So there, it was a natural, uh, you know, it was it was pretty easy um, to to understand what needed to be done. But what do you do with the material? Do you throw the the dirt away? Like most people do, That's put it someplace else. But we we used it for the for the for the stadiums. Beautiful for the people to play. Uh, the other the other part of that was that that uh, I told Pete that I wanted uh, we had four hundred acres and the, the, and and the the golf course could have been routed uh, in single lanes all the way around. You, know, you could have done what the what uh, you could do one around this way and one around back the other, and I told him that I wanted the 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 layout to be so that the the holes would come back and that they that would create uh, uh, areas of activity, so that if somebody didn't want to walk five miles to watch their favorite player. They could stay in an area and watch a lot of golf and not have to walk a long way. And uh, that's you'll see here. There are many. There are about maybe four or five uh, areas of of of, of activity that uh, that somebody can um, you know walk two or three hundred yards and watch a hole, watch a, a tee and a fairway and a green and things like that. When did you know that you had something special? I mean, was there a moment in time where you're you're out here with Pete Dye and it just clicked like, oh, this is different than what we've seen in, in recent years from a golf course design standpoint? Was there a moment for you with Pete? No, there wasn't a moment. Uh, I, I was pretty specific with Pete. Um, you know, he used his own creativity uh, and I, I didn't get in the way of his creativity. But I did say I did I did lay out these hubs of activities mm-hmm. to him, and I also said that I wanted the first hole because the PGA Tour uh, players on Thursday and Friday one goes off the ten tee and one goes off the first tee. I wanted the first hole to be uh, similar in difficulty and length as ten, one and ten the same, uh, two and eleven relatively the same so the first three yeah, holes balance. on each side to balance it off so that so that so that it had relative difficulty yeah. in the first three holes but also give no fair advantage to the guy teeing off on 10 uh, on, or the versus, on ver, 10. yeah versus 11 yes very very similar and the other thing that i wanted uh, was i wanted just as many uh holes that went from left to right as right to left and uh and I wanted uh, the uh, greens to be relatively small. I didn't want large, super large greens. What What about the 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 famous hole, right? The seventeenth. How did How did that come about? Well, that's where the best sand was. Yeah, and we kept digging when we yeah, needed really? more and more and more sand, really? and and ended up with a huge hole. And then we and then looked at each other and said, "Well, what are we going to do?" And 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 Pete's wife Alice said, "Well, let's just let's just." Make it a par three and over water, and, and let's put a green out there, yeah, an island green. Gorgeous. Well, we argued about that. It was going to be a peninsula out, not just, oh, not a, really? not a complete island. 
And in the final analysis, we decided to just make it an the island. island. Now I but, think, you... but we had a big argument about the length of the hole. Really? You know, what was the Pete, argument? Pete, well, the argument Pete wanted to make it about 155 or 60 yards. Pete. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I said, well, if we're going to have a peninsula, we're going to do that. You want an island? It ain't going to be more than 135. Right. So yeah. yeah, especially when the wind's cranking out here. It's, I mean, oh, yeah. that is a very difficult shot, even for the best players in the world. Sure. I think you could argue today that you might be able to build bunkers. If we could build bunkers out of golf balls, you might be able to dredge that pond and build a <laughs> bunk, right. re-bunker their entire course. Yeah, that's right. It's probably safe to say that after the first couple years of playing it, uh, the, the tour players kind of had a rebellion, specifically over the greens. And from an outsider's perspective, it looks like uh, they forced the redesign of those greens. What were Pete's thoughts about being pressed into a redesign so early after completing the project? Well, he was reluctant to. Uh, he liked what he did. Um, to tell you the truth, here's, here's the way it happened. Yeah. Um, I was out here a lot, and Pete designed the greens originally, and, and I came out and looked at them. And uh, they were super severe. So when I had him come back and, and smooth some of the things out that he did on the greens, relative to what he started with, um, mine, my, my changes before we even grasped them, uh, looked pretty benign relative to what he built in the first place. So when we put grass on them, uh, clearly they were still too di- too difficult, and no question in my mind. So uh, even before the first tournament was held, on probably uh, eight or ten of the greens, we made uh, adjustments before the first tournament was held. Uh, so the, fir- the the players who played it the first time in the event. Mm-hmm played a, uh, a, a set of greens that had already been altered twice. <laughs> Once before it was grass, right. another time after it was grass, and they were still too difficult. Wow. They were still too, um, uh, I, I thought, on the, on the wrong side of, of difficulty. So um, I was not, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't get upset at all when the players, uh, as you say, the players rebuild. Uh, a, a little bit and thought it was too difficult because I agreed with them generally. I didn't say publicly I agreed with them, but yeah. but um, uh, we we all cooperated with modifying them again. And uh, and frankly, uh, even after they were out here and walked around and modifying them, they were still probably a little too difficult. And uh, so the probably the third time around that they were modified, I think everybody was happy with it. Yeah. So was he hurt by that, do you think? I mean... I don't I think mean, so. I always think, that, you know, like the artist, you never know. Like the artist has some kind of impression of this is my masterpiece. He, he may have, he never expressed that to me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, this uh, this golf course, uh, 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 Pete helped us make the tournament something special. Absolutely. And the, and the golf course made Pete famous. Absolutely. So it was good good partnership. Yeah, it was it was almost like uh in in a weird way Donald Ross and Pinehurst, right? I mean, he became known for it and sure. his work blossomed. Yes, that's correct. So I've never seen the original greens. I, I don't know, are there any photos of the original greens out here that there may be, but Someone photos are hard to. It is. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Really, you're really. It's really hard to see. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I got buried in my memory. I could remember. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm just, I'm just curious because I, I unfortunately never. Uh, well, I wasn't even playing golf. Um, I, I picked up the game really late, but I'd love to see. If, I, I, that you're right, though. You, you take a photo of something. I take photos of, you know, famous golf courses like National Golf Links of America, and you just can't see it. No, like, you, you walk on it, and I try to take panoramics and low to the ground, and you never capture the depth of that. Yeah. Um, Mr. Beeman, uh, you've always had a great ability to see into the future of golf. You saw it with TPC Sawgrass here, which is where I'm going with the next question. Knowing where we are today with the technology and the game today, do you think it's possible that his green complexes might have been ahead of their time? Or do you think they'd still be too severe for our you know, amazing golf players and their technology today? Uh, no, I th- I th- I still think they were uh, too severe. Yeah, and they were Green they were too severe because they were small. Yeah. if they were that severe and maybe twice as big, um, it would have been. I think it would have been okay. Yeah, but it was the severity and the size, the combination that what 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 I think uh, was on the other side of being. Fair. Yeah, that makes sense because uh, the size is going to be a big factor. If, sure. if a player can avoid a roll in the green by going long or short left or right, it's a strategic issue. If it's a short green, it's it's almost up in the air. It's 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 too much too much too many bounces that were um, um, uh, on on the wrong side of fair. Yeah. Um, going into your prognostication, you may not want to call it that, but um, you're also two decades ahead. Uh, this is moving into kind of equipment. Uh, you're two, two decades ahead on the groove debate uh, when you registered your complaints about the Ping's grooves in the 1980s. And they were later banned by the USGA almost 20 years later. While that lawsuit didn't end up banning the grooves and, and those Ping clubs from the tour, uh, you did win an important decision. Could you walk us through... What you saw on the tour with the ping grooves, specifically the, the square face grooves, and your proactive approach to make the competition fair, because I think that was an interesting piece of, of history there. Well, the 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 groove situation, there was no question that that uh, the the grooves on ping clubs, the square grooves, produce more spin. Absolutely. And my, you know, as a player, uh, I could I could see it every time I hit a ball with it. Uh, and uh, there was, uh, there was, uh, I, I think on the USGA's part, they wouldn't, um, they just, they were sort of behind the eight ball on trying to do something. They were afraid of litigation, very afraid of litigation. So um, I, 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 we got involved in it. We did testing. Uh, we did uh, not very sophisticated testing. And then uh, uh, when the lawsuit uh, came about, uh, when we were proposing that something be done, uh, we, uh, I, I uh, uh, contracted with the individual to build a very sophisticated testing system. And... Uh, um, as I was, uh, uh, the culmination of that was, uh, we we ended up in a uh, in a settlement with with uh, Ping, 
and uh, and and really won the only thing that I thought was important for the tour, um, and that was that 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 Ping acknowledged uh, in our settlement that the PGA Tour did have the right to make its own rules, right. and so I think that in my mind established uh, through that difficult uh, lawsuit that that uh, was. Uh, was pretty unpopular at the yeah. time that um, if we established that we could could uh, buy a manufacturer that we could we were we had the right to make our own rules that uh, that we had won everything we could then it was up to us to figure out how to proceed to make that practical for the PGA tour and how to operate it uh, we set up a separate committee uh, and and that was one of the parts of the settlement that a independent committee would be set up to 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 uh, look at and ascertain what uh, tech, technical aspects of of, of equipment um, would be appropriate, uh, so that there wasn't a conflict of interest between players and the rules. So, I thought that the mechanism was set up. Uh, and and uh, but it was that that mechanism has actually never been used. Yeah. So and it took the USGA almost another twenty years to act on the on the grooves on the on the square face grooves. Was that well, they got decision? they got some new people in the in their technical uh, testing facilities, and uh, as a matter of fact, I was up there uh, uh, talking to them one time on my on one of my trips up north. And um, the technical guys I was talking to basically looked me in the eye, and, and they knew some of the history in the in the lawsuit, and uh, and basically said it. It actually was when they when they actually did the testing, the very technical and and uh, and sophisticated testing. It was the most provable thing that they'd ever done. Really. At the time, that's interesting. That 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 square grooves clearly, clearly were were a huge advantage. So that's when they that's when they uh, jumped in, and after twenty years, decided yeah. that that uh, that we were right in the first place. That square grooves were a problem. Yeah. How did you react to that? I mean, because you were twenty years ahead of the curve. Was that a, a good moment for you, or were you, was there some disappointment that it took twenty years for? You know, well, it was always kind of- always a disappointment. Yes, but uh, you know, my, my attitude generally uh, was then and is today. Mm-hmm. Same thing. It's never too late to do the right thing. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, there's another extraordinary prognostication that you rightly predicted: uh, the distances we would be seeing from the golf ball. And this was a prediction you made 15 years ago in 2005. Uh, Adam Shupak uh, quoted this uh, letter in the book that you wrote to then USGA President Fred Ridley, who is now the chairman of Augusta National. And I'm, I'm going to read it if it's all right, um, because I, it's fascinating to me. I, I read this, and you saw all of this happening 15 years ago. It says, uh, in the next 15 years, a new generation of tour players routinely will be able to drive the ball 330 to 360 yards, rendering all courses obsolete. Is the USGA going to exercise its traditional mandate to protect and preserve the game of golf? 
If you are unwilling to do so, it is imperative that you make it clear to all, all concerned, that you are dropping the banner we all depend on for you to carry and support those who have the courage to pick it up and firmly place it in the ground once again. The time for equivocating has passed. Powerful words. 15 years ago, we're in that moment where tour pros are hitting the ball enormous distances. We're exactly where you predicted we would be, and yet we're in the same position as we were in 2005. Hypothetical question. Totally unfair. If you were still PGA Tour Commissioner today, would you consider enacting that right that you received during the ping lawsuit to roll back the golf ball? What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. No no easy easy answer here. Totally. Um, First of all, it's... it's, uh, when I when I retired in 1994, I'm, I'm delighted with uh, with uh, what has happened to the tour since then. Okay, it's been amazing. Uh, but my only disappointment and the only regret I have for retiring when I did was that I do not believe I would have allowed uh, what has happened to happen as far as equipment technology. Yeah. So I, I, I regret, in, in many respects, regret uh, uh, retiring at that time. However, I recognize that if I hadn't retired and I had uh, done what I think I would have done, that I might have had to retire. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Okay? Yeah. So uh, it, would, it wouldn't have been my choice to right, retire. Right, right. But... Uh, there, there's no question in my mind that I believe technology has uh, has uh, done many, many things uh, for the game, and not many of them positive. Uh, I, I think some people have the notion that is really exciting for the fans and the television viewers to see somebody hit at 350. Yeah, it's the old chicks dig the long ball that the MLB was pushing back yeah, during the steroid. That's effort. right. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't. I. I don't believe that. Uh, that is that, that. That. That's any good reason for why people really watch golf. Yeah, why somebody hit at three fifty, um, and and not only that, most of the television coverage is uh, is around the greens. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Not off, it's not off the tee, and uh, so I think that I think that uh, th- th- there are two problems. One is the golf ball, and one is the club. Mm-hmm. You know, we're the the modern player is hitting the hitting the ball with a with a what I call a prince racket driver. Absolutely, okay? that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's a prince racket driver, and uh, and the golf ball is uh, designed. Uh, the dimpling is designed in a wind tunnel, and the uh, and the ball does not spin as much, so it doesn't curve as much. So today's players. Who are you? You see how big and strong and athletic they are, uh, because they can um, they can excel uh, with the equipment and with the 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 uh, the drivers and the and the clubs and the balls. They can excel because power has has yeah. They maximize all the limits of that tech. That's right, and so. Uh, uh, I, I don't think that's good for the game. It's caused uh, uh, it's caused uh, almost every golf course to have to uh, 
redesign their tees, uh, buy ground to 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 build new tees, yeah. uh, make uh, in order to try. Uh, the, the big problem is is that that in order to protect par as being par being meaningful, uh, they've had to uh, uh, do uh, draconian things to the greens. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, Pete Dyes your greens might work now. It's the way. <laughs> well, make them a little bigger. But but the greens, yeah. the green speeds, speeds are so fast. Yeah. Uh, and the greens are are firm and fast uh, that the average player has a very difficult time coping with that. So we have we've hurt we've made the guy, game more difficult for the average player because the average player can't swing the club fast enough to take advantage of the of the golf ball technology and. Um, I was at the USGA headquarters, uh, oh, probably 10 years ago, maybe. And uh, they were doing a test uh, on drivers, on on uh, on mishits on drivers, of uh, the old uh, the drivers versus the new, the, what the, the 460, what I call Prince Racket driver. And uh, you could mishit something in the neighborhood of, uh, of half to three-quarters of an inch off-center of a, of a 460 driver, a modern driver, and it'll cost you five yards, and it'll still go dead straight. And if you hit this, made the same hit with the old driver that I learned how to play with, persimmon, a persimmon. Oh my gosh! Long yeah, back then, then, it cost you 50 yards, and you couldn't find the ball. <laughs> right? Yeah. It wouldn't wouldn't stay on a golf course. So you can see how uh, how how it has changed uh, the way golf is played. But it's also uh, had an enormous cost uh, effect on on the average player. Uh, it if you if you're maintaining a, a, a twelve a 11, 10, 11, 12 speed green, it probably costs you twice or three times as much to maintain it, and you need more. The 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 golf course needs uh, uh, need they're all longer. Uh, you know, I finished second in the U.S. Open in 1969 on the longest course um, in in USGA history. It was not 7,000 yards, <laughs> right? Right. And, and now, uh, you know, 74, 7,600 yards long is sort of a medium-sized golf course, and that and that requires more maintenance. It requires more to to build the golf course and maintain it. It requires more water. So uh, I, I don't see anything good about it. Yeah. That has happened, and I say again, it was my—it's my greatest regret for retiring when I did. I think I might have had a chance of having some influence over doing something that is long overdue. So, and I and I say the USGA, and I, I I say it to you, but I've said it. I've looked them right in the eyeball and told yeah. them it's never too late to do the right thing. Yeah. So if if I if you were made USGA head of the USGA. And you, and you could do something right now. What do you think the solution? What's the best solution for you know the average Joe and, and the professional golfer? Is it bifurcation, bifurcation, or is it bifurcation? Is a is a uh, bifurcation is uh, is uh, I don't know. I'm trying to be nice here. No, you don't have to be nice. You can yell <laughs> at me, to, you can scream. Bi- bifurcation is a, is a uh, is something to hide behind. Yeah. Okay. Um, golf uh, golf courses and golf has always been bifurcated. If it wasn't bifurcated, 
uh, there'd only be one set of T's. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's more bifurcation than than four sets of T's? Yeah. Uh, so so uh, having having uh, uh, different uh, rules for for different uh, levels of play uh, for equipment uh, is not a problem at all. And 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 because if you recognize that the average player who doesn't have the strength or ability to swing the club as fast as the tour player, uh, he can't take advantage of the things that make the tour player uh, what what it makes uh, the tour player easier to play the game. Um, if if you're not swinging if you're not swinging 105 to 115 miles an hour. Uh, you can't uh, you can't put enough spin on a modern golf ball for it to stay in the air. The average player, my uh, my bet is the average player who probably swings seventy five to eighty five miles an hour uh, would play better and hit it farther with a golf ball that was produced back in nineteen seventy. He would be better with that golf ball. He'd be, he'd hit it farther. And he could control it better. So, would you also would you shrink the size of the driver? I think four sixty. I mean, what's the? I mean, obviously, I don't think we're going to persimmon, but like, where would it? Be, would it be like the original Big Bertha Callaway? Would that be the size, or what do you think? Well, I th- I think that uh, you know it, it's a dual problem, and and, yeah. and I and I, I don't know the percentage of the of the of the uh, uh, of the blame on golf ball or club. But it's clearly both. Yeah, and uh, so I think uh, I think uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the average player needs as much help as he can, and the and the, and the tour player ought to be as skilled as you could make him. Right, I like that. Um, I, I have two que- I had two questions to end the podcast. Um, I think we kind of already a- answered one of them, but I, let's just hit it again. Uh, if you could do anything. now, but I, yeah, go ahead, but I, I will let me back up a minute. Yeah, please. I do not agree with one of the notions, which is to take the golf ball and make it not go as far. Okay. Uh, if you if you uh, come up with some formula that that takes thirty yards off the golf ball. Uh, you you uh, you still cede the, the game to the to the to gorilla because if you if you take uh, if you take a 560 yard or 580 yard par five which is most of them are that long today on the PGA tour and Dustin Johnson uh, is can't hit it 350 but he can still hit it 320 still in the same boat he's still in the same boat but you take Zach Johnson. Who hits it uh, 290, and now he's hits it 260. He's dead. Huge disparity. Yeah, huge disparity. So, uh, what you want to do is to make sure that if you're going to use that full strength you have, you better have it under control. And that's why the golf ball auto spin and curve. So it's really and, about spin and allow yeah. and allow the guy to still hit it 350 if he can hit it perfectly. I don't mind that. I never mind. A guy that could hit past me, because he's got to be in control to do it. He got to maintain control to get yeah. it. But there were, you know, in 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 the uh, in the dark ages of golf, thirty, forty, fifty years ago, yeah. there were players that could that were really big and strong, but they probably swung at sixty, seventy percent of their 
yeah. potential. Well, that's what Hogan said, right? Be, beca- Hogan said, yeah. Because uh, if they mishit it, they couldn't find it. Yeah. They couldn't finish. If you watch, uh, I, I watch some of the Shell's uh, uh, golf, uh, you know, reruns on the Golf Channel and on YouTube, and you see excellent hitters like you know um, Byron Nelson, and the trajectory of his tee shots and the spin on those shots is just. You don't see that on the tour anymore. Now they're high and far and, and don't move. And these things were moving all over the place from one of the best swingers in the history of the game. It's well, that's because the golf ball was, uh, yeah. we, you, had to, you had to hit it right to hit it straight. Yeah. I'll tell you a, a funny side story, and then we'll go with the last two. But um, what, gosh, what was this? This was uh, 12 years ago when I, I was really studying the history of the game. I decided that the only way for me to really study it was to, like, push myself into an uncomfortable position. I decided in 2008 that for a five-year period, I was only going to play hickory-shafted clubs. And then two years after that, I only played gutty-era clubs. Because if I was going to talk about Harry Varden or Bobby Jones, I wanted to get an idea of what it was like to walk in their shoes as much as I could with the technology we have. But my first ever round with those hickory-shafted clubs was at TPC Sawgrass, the stadium close. And I pulled up. My buddy said it was the first time I'd ever swung because I lived in Iowa at the time. It was February, so we couldn't even play. And my buddy said, he's like, I'll bet you $100 you can't break 100 at the at the stadium course with those hickory-shafted clubs. And I was like, I didn't even want to take the bet. I was a two-handicap at the time. And I said, you know, I'll take that bet. So I parred the first three holes. And I was like, break 100, I'm going to break 80. <laughs> and then the course bit me. I went double, double, double. And I, I, I came in, I shot an 84, I won the bet. But I, I just remember that moment where TPC Sagras came up and said, oh, really? <laughs> Pete Dye is like, you, you think you got this? <laughs> Try again. Yeah. So I'll go into my last two questions. And you answered this one, I think, already. But um, if you had anything to do over from your time as commissioner, what would it be? And, and I think you, you answered that one pretty well. Yeah, I'd be I'd I'd try to be um, have more influence over the technology. Yeah. So that uh, I, I and I think modern technology is has uh, helped the, the 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 athletic player and yeah. hurt the average player. Absolutely. And and hurt the uh, and hurt the general public playing golf because it has increased the cost of of playing golf yeah and everybody everybody feels it everybody says that the problem with golf today is takes too long well that's what a long course takes too long (laughs) it it's too hard and and it costs too much those are the three things and i think technology has affected all those three things yeah and to your point I, i like i said i played hickory shafted clubs for five years and the ball did move a lot more but it didn't go as far, so you'd find yourself in a fairway, whereas if I was hitting a 460cc driver, it'd be in somebody's home. <laughs> you know, I was on the left side of the fairway instead of that same turn with a 460cc driver would have, you know, hit it out of bounds. So there's, it's keeping the ball in front of you as much as anything. That's, that's what golf's all about. Yeah. It's supposed to be. Yeah, it's supposed to be, or it was. Um, so let, let's ask this question. What are you most proud of from your time as PGA Tour Commissioner, like what, when you, when you hang your hat up or you're going to bed at night, what's the one thing where you're like, you know, I made a difference here? Well, you know, uh, uh, most people that look at uh, my uh, term as commissioner and, and the, the year since then 
we have focus on the money. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Focus on the charity dollars. Uh, focus on the uh, on the on the players' uh, income, success of the tournaments, um, and and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of having set the groundwork for for where we are today. But I think the thing that uh, as I look at uh, overall, I, I I am I'm probably most proud of the fact that uh, of all the sports that have uh, been able to elevate themselves into what I call big money sports, Yeah. okay? That golf is the only one that has been able to maintain the integrity of the game they play. That uh, the players uh, and, and, the, and the spectators recognize and the players uh, uh, are... are uh, very supportive of and and insist on um, the fact that uh, that golf uh, and golfers uh, respect the rules. They respect the rules officials. Uh, they respect their fellow competitors, and uh, that uh, if there is anything that is untoward, uh, that uh, that a a a, a player who uh, is looked on as maybe not abiding by all the rules is not revered. Uh, it's quite the opposite. And uh, in most other sports, um, when somebody gets away with a rule, uh, he is he goes into the locker room and everybody's patting on the back because right. they helped him win. He got away with something. He got away with something, right. and so he's a he's a champion. And if that happened in golf, you might be alone in the locker room. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Um, Mr. Beeman, I personally want to thank you for and for everything, uh, for everything you've done for the game of golf. Um, it's been one of my great treats in my golfing life uh, to have this ability, chance to sit down with you and talk about your legacy. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the Talking Golf History Podcast. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. It could be argued that Dean Beeman is the most important figure in the history of professional golf. His time as commissioner of the PGA Tour resulted in billions of dollars for charities, a better fan and TV viewing experience, and of course, more money for the players. His influence on the professional game is often overlooked, but certainly felt every time you watch a golf tournament. In my hour with Mr. Beeman, my only regret is we only scratched the surface of his contribution to the game. He is without a doubt one of the great legends of the game. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>